this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are back with a round table, ones that I like to call in the 90s. I call that because it's literally what we're doing in the 90s. Everything we do is about the 90s, Jay. Did you know that? I've heard a rumor about that, yeah. yeah. So, no, these are special episodes for our round tables. We do these twice a year. The in the 90s is when we take a hugely successful 80s artist like we did with Duran Duran, Metallica, Van Halen uh-huh. on previous episodes. Yeah. And yeah. we look at how they navigated the 90s, the shifting landscape of the 90s. Was it quicksand? Did it swallow them? Because, Jay, you know, when we were kids, we were told quicksand was going to be a really big problem based on all the shows that we watched, whether it was the A-Team <laughs> or Hardcastle right, and McCormick. Yeah. You know, all those yeah. shows had had some sort of a quicksand episode. Mm-hmm. Has it prov- proven to be a, a massive problem? But for some bands, they did get swallowed up and chewed up and spit out. And uh, we like to figure out if these bands uh, survived the 90s or if they were done in by the 90s. And for this episode, we're going to be talking about you 2 Who's that? Yeah. We'll get into this indie band that people might not have heard of. <laughs> right. And with that... <laughs> With help from two gentlemen who have been here many times before, joining us from Texas, the Longhorn State, Jerry <laughs> Jones. <laughs> I'm just going to say things that are Texas in nature. Yeah. JR. JR Ewing. Eric Cruz, yeah, just- welcome back. Hi guys, welcome. Uh, happy to be back, and I'm happy to tell you about the horses that are out in the stable. Excellent. No, Earl. I don't have. I don't have horses. Okay, Earl Campbell. Yeah, Bum Phillips. You know, J.R. Ewing. Just naming things. Yeah, SMU Mustangs cheating. <laughs> I I don't have horses yet, but my daughter does ride horses, and I bought cowboy boots recently, so it's only a matter of time. Whoa. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you're in the part of uh, Texas that everybody thinks is the only cool part of Texas. I'm here to tell you, Austin is not the only coolest uh, city mm. in Texas. Dallas Fort Worth is very awesome. Uh, cowboy boots are one thing. When you get the hat and lasso. Then we'll talk. <laughs> I want to see so Jay many, on YouTube doing lasso tricks. There's so many boot repair places around me. Like every, t- literally every 10 feet is a uh, shoe or boot repair repair shop. Well, so, you got I'm all like, these punk, you got all these punk rockers with their full sleeve tats and realize, <laughs> Hey man, I like country. So they buy a Stetson. And so they need to get their boots repaired. Right. Just saying. <laughs> I mean, it just it makes sense. <laughs> All right, and joining us once again, he was just here for the last round table. As a matter of fact, I was. You were. 
Joe Royland, welcome back so soon. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be back yet again. Do they have cowboy boots in Maine? They, what's they the, do. <laughs> what's the native footwear in Maine? Uh, Moccasin? Pro- probably LL L. Bean boots. Uh, <laughs> there we go. That's, that's a good one, yeah. Jay, just want to mention real quick this week, we are in our second week of our May studio partnership. We're going to be giving away a pair of Regent headphones for one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com forward slash digmeout. You go to studio.com to check them out, and you can get 15% off your purchase with the code DIGMEOUT. That's one word, D-I-G-M-E-O-U-T. Coming up later in the show, we're going to be talking about our region headphones, the ones that we've been using since last fall, and give you an update on those. So we're talking about U2. Let me just start out with... This is, I have found, and I was not expecting this, but based on our comments on, on Patreon, which we'll get to, and then also on Facebook, this is a divisive band. Some people really hate you too, and some people are, this is the greatest band in the world, and they love this band. So, which I find interesting because, uh, you know, for a band that's had this much longevity, you know, they started in basically the late 70s, and if you look at other bands of, that have existed for this long. I mean, you're really looking at a very small number of bands. You're looking at like the Rolling Stones have been together basically for, you know, since the sixties, you know, uh, there have been some bands that have uh, changed a lot of members, but this is a band that's for original members. Um, But do people hate the Rolling Stones? I don't think people hate the Rolling Stones. They might say, Oh, you know, I'm sick of them or whatever, but they don't, I don't think they have vitriol hate for them, but there are some people that really, really hate you too. So tell me guys, how much do you hate you two or do you not hate them at all? <laughs> Eric, I'll start with you. Uh, I love you two overall. Um, can't say lots of positive things about their last three or four records, but over, but I can't let those records overshadow how important this band is. I will get to why, but that's my simple answer. Okay. Joe. I go back and forth between loving you two and just being ambivalent about them. Okay. I don't hate them. No hate though. Jay. Uh, I'm kind of where Joe is, uh, maybe a little bit more casual. Uh, there'll be singles I hear that I really, really love. And then there's long periods of time where I could care less. Okay. I, I was a casual fan in the eighties. And I watched the videos and listened to the songs on the radio, but I never bought any albums. The first, my first YouTube purchase was a single of one from Octune Baby because it had a buffalo on it. And I lived in Buffalo and I was like, that's cool. <laughs> wow, you're easy. I wow. am. <laughs> I'm, all about, I'm all about that hometown Buffalo pride. Uh, so, no, but I, I, Octune Baby was the first album that I got into. In the mm-hmm. 90, when it came out in 91. So uh, I was not a huge, you know, not say it was, I was a casual fan, like you were saying. And um, I've returned to being a casual fan or disinterested fan, I guess, in the last decade or so. So let's talk about the, the early 90s for this band. Um, they come into it just so people have a, you know, this is. When we're talking about successful bands in the 80s, there are very few bands that exceed this band. So 
the first two albums, Boy in October, about three and a half million copies each. Now that's that's pretty good for your first and second record, especially when yeah. those are pretty obscure. War sells eleven million, nineteen eighty three. Then you have the Unforgettable Fire, which actually dips down to about eight million. Then you hit the Joshua Tree. That's twenty five million. I mean, there are there are wildly successful bands that don't sell that for their entire career. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's yeah. wildly successful bands that don't even sell as much as the Unforgettable Fire sold. Right. That's that's crazy. Right. So they follow up the twenty-five million of the Joshua Tree with fourteen million of the Rattle and Hum album, which is a double <laughs> LP. Uh, so that's f- about forty million between those two releases in nineteen eighty-seven and nineteen eighty-eight. So what do you do then? Because <laughs> here's the interesting thing about the end of the decade for them is that they were kind of losing their critical darling uh, status. Yep. Uh, yeah. And we can get into this a little bit, but mm-hmm. they uh, were called, Rattle Home was called Bloated, uh, Self-Indulgent. They were trying to, because they had B.B. King and they were covering, or, or they're singing about uh, Elvis Presley and they were trying to elevate themselves into a, 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 elevated into a status of American blues and um, uh, rock icon status. And basically, there was a backlash. Even though they sold 18 million copies, they were still popular with fans. Uh, there was yeah. a critical backlash with U2. So mm-hmm. going into Octoon Baby, you know, the band reportedly was struggling with what direction to take and and what have you. So let me ask you guys: um, Were you fans of of Rattle and Hum, uh, or did you find that to be? bloated in the same way that some of the artists or some of the critics uh referred to it back in the day who wants I to go first <laughs> oh, go i'll jump in with a short okay, one okay. i remember just being confused because I, I didn't understand what they were doing like as a casual fan you know as the videos are coming on and um I didn't get it. I didn't understand if it was like a covers album or if it was a was an album or just a single or a concert video or what the hell, what they were going through and what they were doing with all the guest musicians and trying to associate them with a whole different kind of music. I just remember being confused and, you know, for somebody who is probably what this would have been, I'm like 12, 13 at this time, not not the kind of music I was into either. Um, Elvis wasn't the coolest thing in the world for a 13 year old in 1988. So, uh, right. I, I didn't get it. Eric, Joe, what about you guys? Joe, you want to go first? Oh yeah, I'll go first. Um, I remember I, I like the movie still more than I like the album. Um, by the time that, uh, that Rattle and Hum came out, I, I, it was just kind of a lot of, and I think this is like kind of where some of the backlash. It was just so much overload from the Joshua Tree. Like that, you know, that album was so successful and had so many songs. Uh, my friends' bands, like they would play like half the songs from that album during their sets. Like they cover bands and stuff. And 
I just kind of gotten burned out on them a bit. So when the album came out, I was like not very much about it. It wasn't until I actually saw the movie that then I got into some of the songs. But even even still, it's like I, I like about half that record and the other half I just don't care for at all. Okay, Eric. Okay, um, well, I wanted to just kind of tell you the backstory and leading up to Rattle and Hum. I was aware of you two all throughout the '80s. I still remember hearing "Pride in the Name of the Love," "Pride in the Name of Love," on the radio and being really struck at how how amazing that chorus is. Um, and then when my family got MTV and I watched it every single day between the summer of 1987 until the summer of 1998, save for a few days. So you two was very much a part of what I was hearing every single day. And there came a point. Um, I mean, I loved all the songs off of Joshua Tree. And then when Rattle and Hum came out, it just kind of seemed like, well, here's more songs. And uh, I remember getting the tape after I fell in love with you two in 1992 because of Octung Baby and seeing all the old videos like MTV would air entire hour long specials devoted to old U2 videos. Um, and so I, I was like, this was the first band I ever fell in love in with that I had to own everything that they had put out. And so with Rattle and Hum is that I loved it from start to finish. You know, starting off with Charles Munson stole this from the Beatles, now stealing it back. You know, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it was, it made, I was a very young and impressionable person and I love that kind of attitude it, because it was more than just performing songs. It was actually saying something. And the movie is beautifully shot. Um, there are some songs that are done even better live than what they were on Joshua Tree. Like in God's Country. In God's Country, when Edge has his lead, it's just like, holy cow. Um, there's the version of I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For that's played with a choir in a you know an old church in, I think, Alabama or Mississippi. I mean, it just gives me goosebumps even still thinking about it. That said, if you were to want me to watch Josh, uh, sorry, rattle and hum. Now you would have to get me really drunk because I cannot stand Bono's rants in that movie. It, it makes it very, very dated. And, um, you know, if you could just have like the, the, you know, them performing the songs on a DVD, I'd be perfectly fine with it. But all those new songs that they did for it, especially all I want is you, um, Really, really beautiful song, and I always enjoy hearing Angel of Harlem around Christmas time because <laughs> there's the line at New York like a Christmas tree. So that's where I was coming from with Rattle and Hum. But I remember that there was this whole thing about they performed, they said this at the last show bef at the very end of the Rattle and Hum tour, Joshua Tree, whatever. And it's like, we're going to take a little break for a little while. I don't know why I think Bono sounds like he's from Liverpool, but um, it, <laughs> but it was like this. people were like, what? Are they breaking up? What's going on? And so going into Octung Baby, they were like, well, let's try something different. And I have heard this line about what Brian Eno did on the sessions of Octung Baby was that they would record at night. And then the following morning, Brian Eno would go in and take out all the very U2-esque things 
I don't know. Octung Baby is like a logical progression. And there's still a lot of U2 characteristics on that record. So anyway, that's well, my long spiel about U2. That's a good... <laughs> for for um, that era. That's a good opportunity for me to mention some comments from our patrons. Uh, as far as uh, Octune Baby goes, uh, Retention Pond Honey said, I would compare U2 to the Beatles as an example. Octune Baby is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts, Hearts Club Band, as Zuropa is, Zuropa is the Magical Mystery Tour. The celebrated album was tepid compared to the EP album that followed. The first was safe. The second was far more exciting. So that's an interesting take that Octune Baby, even though it was a drastic change from Rattle and Hum and, and the Joshua Tree, is actually the less uh, interesting album when compared to Zuropa. And that, that actually got some pushback uh, from some folks. Keith Sawyer said, I'm definitely not the best person to comment on this subject, as I thought Octune Baby was a desperate and embarrassing grab at relevancy in the new century that diluted their natural strengths. The fly symbolizes everything that went wrong with this band in the 90s, a terrible idea to genre expand their sound that reveals how incompetent they are outside their comfort zone. Zuropa seems like an oral apology with its incredible conservative approach. U2 now sounds like so many of the forgettable mid-90s one-hit wonder bands populating the airwaves, but at least it isn't pop, which doubles down on Octune's desperation for relevancy by sounding dated before it was even released as the lead single Discotech might have been a Jesus Jesus Jones outtake. To which Darren Svedson said Zeropa was conservative? Uh, And it just goes, and it goes on. I'll bring up some more comments later, but... I think that that to me is one of the most interesting aspects of the divide in U2 fans is that some people look at Octune Baby and think this is the greatest reinvention of a band I've ever heard. They took chances, you know, uh, the edge dialed down the delay on the guitar that he was so famous for. And he took chances with all sorts of effects that he hadn't used before. And then some people look at it as this is their pathetic attempt to be relevant, to make, uh, to incorporate all these, 90s-esque sounds with uh, whether it's like drum loop sounds or um, just heavier guitar tones and, and whatnot and dancier sounds. And uh, it's it's almost, it's it's incredible that a band that's this successful has such a wide range of emotion on albums that, you know, again, when we look at the album sales, Octune Baby sold 18 million. So in a three-album span, they're in like... 60 million sales. And yet there are people that are like, this is garbage. And we're not talking about pop music here. We're not talking about right. you know, Britney Spears or right. the new kids on the it, block. I see, it's I, kind of, oh, go ahead. I, I, was, I was just going to say, it's like, I think as popular as they are, I can imagine that not every like, and not everybody likes everything that they have done, which is totally fine. You know, it and it seems like back when I used to listen to sound opinions, it was like any time that they would talk about you two, Jim Dero Goddess would always have to talk about. I love this band, but I hate Bono. And I think that's kind of how a lot of people see him. It's like music's great. I could care less about Bono. It's true. It's almost what you said about like you like the musical performances from Madeline Hum, but you just don't want to hear Bono's rants. You know? 
that kind of, I think it's the same, that's the way a lot of people view it too. It's like, they kind of like the actual songs, but they just don't want all the politics and Bono personality that goes outside of the band that goes along with that. That turns a lot of people off. Yeah. Like he's, 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 especially in Rattle and Hum, they have this romanticized view of what America is, you know, coming from the perspective of living in Ireland all their lives. And they just get so deep rooted in it. And, and um, have y'all ever read YouTube by YouTube? You know, this extensive coffee table oral history of the band. Bono goes off on some pretty crazy rants. <laughs> and uh, I, it's like I could kind of hang with them. But other times when you're making some like pretty broad comparisons or you have the kind of this weird way of explaining like what your influences were. You know, it's you can kind of lose people with it and it's it, it, and it, it can come across. It's such a cliche word to say, but it comes across as pretentious. And um, but, you know, when it comes right down to it, when Bono sings, I mean, he's he's still one of the greatest vocalists alive. In my opinion. Oh, yeah. And, and the, as a band, they're fantastic. I think, yeah. you know, Larry Mullen Jr. is like um, or rather. Yeah, Larry Mullen Jr. is one of the most underrated drummers out there. The guy is just a machine. And yeah. and uh, Adam Clayton is a bass player. I think he's totally underappreciated. And, and mm. when they had, jeez, um, oh, of course, the, the movie just slipped my mind. Um, the guitar movie with... Um, it might get loud. Thank you. It might get loud. A lot of people were questioning, like, why is the edge in this movie? Well... Why was because, Jack White in that? <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, he, he definitely represented an era. You had, you know, the edge was like 80s and 90s. Jimmy Page was 60s and 70s. And Jack White was like the 2000s and kind of all that stuff before it. But he very much deserved to be there because of everything he brought to the table. He was highly influential guitar player. So he mm -hmm. definitely deserved to be there. And I can say this as a bass player in a band that Adam Clayton's bass playing is hugely influential to me, not because uh, I, I pride myself in being a very simple bass player. It's because of the fact that I play with two guys that like to go between rhythm guitar and lead at multiple t times throughout the song. So for me to be in tight with the drummer, I just keep it very simple um, and just try to keep a melodic bass uh, <laughs> base for the bass lines. And uh, I mean, if y'all didn't know, but some of the biggest U2 songs have the simplest bass lines you could imagine because with or without you is literally four notes over and over again. There is right. no variation. It is four notes while, you know, you have, Bono just singing into the stratosphere and you have uh, the edge playing all kinds of guitar leads and, uh, and Larry Mullen Jr.'s drumming the way that he goes between like snare to floor Tom, you know, you hear that on, uh, with or without you as well as pride, just very inventive. And so it was really disappointing to read in YouTube by YouTube is that he shits on all of his drumming performances pretty much up all the way until all that you can't leave behind. So it's like, dude, give yourself some credit. Oh God. Yeah. Especially like those, I mean, the drums on even the early YouTube albums are killer. Some things in like, like a song off of war. Yeah. My yeah. God, that's amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it, and it got to another level with Octone baby. Um, right. and you know, Octung baby to me, start to finish amazing record. 
And you could see them really getting into this whole thing of like, hey, it's the early 90s and uh, we have all these cable channels and we got all this information and they just kind of kept experimenting with that idea. And I think by the time that they got to pop all that, what they were mocking, that's what they became. And exactly. Yeah. You know, I want to touch on that because well, the zoo, t- yeah. zoo TV tour that happened around Octoon Baby. Yeah. Uh, like, well, yeah. I mean, like calling the White House and ordering 50,000 or 5,000 pizzas or something. I mean, it was just like, it was just no one else could do that at that time. And it was, it was just this information overload, but there, it was all spurred on by a very strong record. There are, as I said, start to finish, Octung Baby has so many great songs on there. Yeah, and I just want to point out timeline here. So I think Keith was, what do you say, it was a desperate attempt to be relevant and maybe even applying it was derivative. But, I mean, this was recorded pretty much in 1990. Right. So, like, this is yeah. right, this is pre-Nirvana, pre-Alternative, you know, really breakthrough this is why they're working on this um i, I don't I, when i listened to this record and when it came out at the time it didn't sound like anything i had heard before Jay, let's just take a minute out from this episode and talk about our Regent headphones from Studio. As you know, and as our listeners know, this is a month of Studio partnership. We are giving away a pair of Regents, the ones that we've been using for quite a while now. And that's going to happen on our episode 384, which will be out on the 22nd. We're going to be announcing it on the show. you got to be a Patreon subscriber patreon.com forward slash dig me out as long as you are a subscriber by may 15th midnight you are signed up to win so jay let's talk about studio region headphones i don't know about you but i have basically had these on every day since since we got them yeah because i well because i work from home now um yep so i i have them on to edit the podcast like i i mentioned back when we first got these i have them on when we record so that's like, you know, we record one day, I edit over like a day or two, um, and then I also listen to music on them, and I when I make music, I use them, because I, uh, I have a side career, Jay, I don't know if you know this, as a uh, musician, I used, to, I used to play in a yeah. band you might be familiar with, 
Uh-huh. And uh, but I still do like some you know electronic uh, you know keyboard uh, ambient electronic instrumental stuff, and I record with these. And oh, I also nice. uh, listen to a lot of music on my computer via these, whether it's uh, streaming or uh, MP3s on my computer. So I pretty much have these on every day. And, and I, the the thing to me that besides the sound quality, which is great, is that I don't get fatigued with yeah. the headphones. I don't know if that's, yep. you find the same thing, but that's the thing I love. Yeah. I, in, I found uh, just going to wireless headphones – I just get so much more use out of them. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but just not having that cord to deal with, like getting caught on stuff and um, it just it, it allows you to walk around. You can have your phone on a charger and you can go do stuff. You can, you know, I'll kind of put them on in the morning and just kind of mill around the house and do all my chores and go outside and take care of the dogs and just like do what I would normally do. But you've got music on and you don't have to worry about um carrying a phone around or right. having the cord get caught on something and they last so long, the, the battery life. So I had a prime mine away from my daughter. Zora's had them for, <laughs> for a while. So she's using them. I mean, in terms of the, it can speak to the durability. She's using them every day, um, travels with them. So we've gone on a couple trips and she takes them with her. She takes them in the car whenever we go in the car. So, yeah, when we got the white ones, you'd think they'd start to look trash by now, but they look exactly like when we got them. They still work great. So, uh, I, I mean, in terms of wireless on-ear headphones, I don't know that you're going to get a better deal either. That's the great part. It's like these aren't, you know, uh, super expensive, especially if you use a discount code. You're, you're. I don't know that you're going to find a better quality wireless on-ear headphone than these two, which is also nice. These aren't like crazy expensive. So let's direct people to go to studio.com. They can go and check them out there. Check them out on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest at Studio Sweden. That's S-U-D-I-O Sweden. And then Instagram is just Studio. And as we mentioned, during the month of May, you get 15% off your purchase by using the code DIGMEOUT. That's D-I-G-M-E-O-U-T over at studio.com. And we'll be giving away a pair of these region headphones on May 22nd, on episode 384, make sure to get signed up at Patreon by midnight on May 15th. So let's get back to the episode. groundbreaking yeah Yeah. like i i don't i completely disagree with what he was saying about like uh, you know trying to you know uh grab it trying to stay relevant and all these 90s tropes it's like no they invented these 90s tropes yes all these other bands copied them after they did it 
You know, it's like you're only one. Like you said, this was recorded in 1990. When it comes out, you're only one year into the new decade. Like, like these sounds didn't even exist yet. Yep. Yeah. Because you got to understand where the where the music industry was, because you had hair metal be so dominant as well as pop music. And you had these college favorites that turned into big stars and they were just on the cusp of making some of their biggest work. R.E.M. is another example. Um, Right. To a lesser extent, XTC. Uh, And and so it was like. The fact that they were making these kinds of sounds in 1990, you know, all analog, you know, recorded a lot of this in, well, it, it, Wikipedia says it was a lot of it was filmed in Ireland, but there but there was a certain amount that was uh, done in Berlin because uh, I, from what I remember that the sessions in Berlin didn't really uh, have good material until they stumbled upon one. And right. then they then they right. finished the record in Ireland because I think this starts the beginning of you two really, really thinking about what they want to do next. And sometimes that works out great for them. Other times it doesn't um, because uh, I remember reading in Rolling Stone while they were recording. Uh, it was like this in-depth look at how they were recording, how to dismantle an atom bomb. It was like, Hey, we're working on a song at 11 a.m. and it's at one tempo. And then at like three o'clock that afternoon, it's at a completely different tempo. Um, it's in a different key. And, and so it's that whole experimentation of like, let's see how much we can do with this song. And in the case of one, they thought they had that finished. And in kind of the 11th hour, Edge was like, I got an idea for like an outro. And it's that chiming guitar outro that is so synonymous with what makes that song even better than what it, what everything prior to it is. And so, you know, yeah, I would, I would agree with Joe. It's, it's inventing sounds that really hadn't been invented yet. And as far as like the Jesus Jones thing, it's like, you know, Jesus Jones was very influenced by like, um, pre-rave dance music and they wanted to incorporate that with uh, electric guitars and uh, real drums and it's like it's it's a common thing these were things that u2 was into at the time and because when u2 started out they didn't really know how to play their instruments they called themselves feedback because that was the predominant thing that was all throughout their rehearsals when they would practice in the school that they all met at they were influenced by the jam pil big time pil um, television, uh, but they were able to form their own sound. And that's kind of in a weird way. It's a product of what post-punk was, but instead of them using disco beats, like a lot of post-punk bands did, and, you know, they tried to be like as, you know, weird and as anachronistic as possible. Uh, I think Steve Lillywhite helped set them in a direction where they were, had more of a pop feel to it. And then by the time, you know, with them working with Brian Eno on, um, uh, unforgettable fire and then with Joshua tree, but then they work again with Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, the fact that they created something that sounded different, but also very familiar. I mean, it, it, it's, you don't have records like that be made. You don't have that kind of arc with a lot of bands these days, especially bands that can sell, the amount of records that they did. Do you guys think that a when a band intentionally 
redo changes their sound like they say we are going in a different direction you know you two saying we're we're reinventing ourselves you know they're doing a zoo tour they're doing you know bono's coming out and he's the fly and or he's macfisto or whatever he's creating a persona they're embracing irony as opposed to earnestness that anytime that that happens whether it's this band or if it's arcade fire or if it's you know any band that in- embraces a massive shift in their sound uh, is going to have backlash because there's going to oh, be yeah. people who are just oh, yeah. stuck thinking that a band is one way, and when you radically change that sound, it, they they can't pivot with the it, band. Well, and not all the bands can recover from it. I mean, there's a lot of bands that do it, and then they are kind of lost after that. Like it might have right. worked for that record, yeah. but then they can't get back on the rails or reinvent mm-hmm. themselves a third or a fourth time. Yeah. Uh, this was a band that was heavily influenced by touring arenas in England and Europe with U2 uh, about 15 years ago, but I'm talking about Kings of Leon. Um, I personally love what Kings of Leon have done since they, f- they full on sold out. Okay. They sold out, but there are plenty of people that stand by those first two Kings of Leon records, but then they are all like, well, if we're going to play stadiums, Let's be like you too. Um, same with Coldplay. Um, this was a band that when I heard Parachutes, I didn't think, oh yeah, this band's going to try to be like you uh, two in two records. No, I was like, wow, this is like a nice little folky Jeff Buckley influenced Radiohead sort of pop guitar record. And uh, same with uh, Russia Blood to the Head. And then before their third record comes out, what X and Y, you know, on the cover of Entertainment Weekly, are they the next U2? And it's like they can, they've never really been able to go back to what made them special because they're just trying to be, <laughs> they, they made that change. Right. But as far, as far as U2 goes, they've kind of just stuck in their lane ever since the stuff with pop didn't work out. Right. Well, well before we get into pop, we need to talk about Zeropa because that one came up a couple of times in their Patreon comments. Um, Johnny Hooper said, I think it's fair to say that you two had a very good nineties being the biggest rock band in the world. Doesn't hurt. Octune baby was a bold creative step and the best sounding studio album of their whole career. Zeropa by and large was the natural extension of that creativity and is in my opinion, at least a success though. The PR campaign and the tour for pop were giant miscalculations. I think the record Though a hit and miss affair holds up relatively well, and it's the la- also the last time they pushed themselves. And then um, Jeff Loney says, "I am in the minority, but I love pop. Great songs, but not great singles. But I think it is overall better overall than all that you can't leave behind. All that you can leave behind, but not better than Beautiful Day. So that's an interesting uh, comment on that one with regards to singles versus album." And then uh, Matthew Barnes says, Octoon Baby still holds up so well. It had such a moody vibe and direction, and the songwriting is so good that I can pretty much uh, can't get sick of listening to it. Zuropa was the musical equivalent of drinking bland tea and mainlining Zoloff. The next thing I heard was Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me off the Batman Forever soundtrack, and I thought it was so badass and heavy for you, too. I was so psyched for their next record, Pop, but uh, yeah, we all know how that went down. It was at least an interesting experiment, though. 
Then Beautiful Day happened and U2 went on to start the phase of their career as one of the most boring and least relevant bands of all time. Quite a shame, really. So let's get into Zeropa just because I, I really like that record because it's so weird and um, because they took so many chances. I remember seeing the video for Numb and just being like, mm-hmm. what in the what? hell is going <laughs> I cannot believe that this is on TV. Like that to yeah. me was like, they can do anything they want and MTV is going to play their video. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. it was such an interesting time in that respect that they could take that kind of chance. But I could also see someone who was really into the Joshua tree being like, what in the F am I watching or what am I listening to? What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't travel by train, don't peek, don't spill, don't piss in the train, don't let the world. Did you guys, yeah. you know, get that album when it came out? Did you did you yeah, look at I that did. and go, what yep. the hell? Got it right away. Uh, me too. Yeah. I went to a midnight opening for it and even got a free t-shirt with it. <laughs> I still have someplace. But like like Eric, I was like, I loved Octune Baby when that came out. Uh, I thought that was great. I mean, the, I didn't get into this when we were talking about it. But like um, the day Octune Baby came out. Uh, one of my coworkers and I had to go to a conference someplace and we stopped and picked up a copy of Octoon Baby. And that was all we listened to on the way there and back was that record the whole time. Loved every second of it. But when Zuropa came out, I was excited for it. I was all couldn't wait to hear what was going on. And I remember at the time them basically saying how uh, this is kind of like b-sides and some some stuff we were working on it was originally going to just be an ep and they kind of fleshed it out into an album so i think that's why it takes a lot more chances because they weren't really thinking about it too much they were just trying to come up with some stuff quickly and and that's why it has maybe more of an experimental edge to a lot of it um but at the time i listened to that album quite a bit uh that was like when my wife and I first started dating. So I have a lot of memories from that. Like uh, we, we used to play that record all the time and stuff too. So I still like it. Yeah. What I've found that I was so excited when that record came out, um, cause the singles were on MTV and I really liked them and stay far away. So close is probably one of the best oh, songs oh, yeah. I've ever heard. I will second that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a very simple guitar line, um, and the video is a little weird in retrospect. I mean, it's like it was inspired inspired by a Werner Herzog film, and uh, but when I I just revisited it for in preparation for doing this episode, it's like some of 
the material on that record are like b-sides like daddy's gonna play sorry daddy's gonna pay for your crashed car you know you know it was um it, it was it was like b-side stuff along with really really good stuff I actually really like Daddy's gonna pay for your crash. <laughs> I like I like when they go do that like weirdness and uh, take those chances, which they would stop doing by the end of the decade. Um, Jay, I'm curious about you because I don't know where your headspace was in '93 yeah. with regards to this. I remember when Numb. I heard Numb the first time. I was one of those that did not like it. <laughs> um, didn't get it. Uh, didn't understand where they were going. I this uh, this album's got a couple tunes that get a little loungy, and I, I maybe just think like, what the hell was going on in the '90s when bands were doing like these little offshoots of songs and albums that were getting loungy, or there were even bands that even had that kind of feel. Why, why did that happen? Uh, but I do like um, "Stay." I think that's a great song. So I agree that there's some there's a couple great songs in here, and then there's just a lot of like what sound like leftover songs from Octoon Baby." Or things they threw together, like, fairly quickly. Yeah, in retrospect, it definitely sounds more piecemeal than maybe I realized at the time. But uh, this might have been the first time I bought a U2 record when it came out. Because I don't think I bought Octoon Baby right when it came out. I think I just got that single and then maybe got it later. But this might have been the first time I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get the new, new U2 record. You know, I'm only a decade late in on um, being on the YouTube train, and it's this weird <laughs> record. Um, so what's interesting is that you know they've had these two records now: uh, Octoon Baby, 18 million worldwide; Zeropa, seven million worldwide. Worldwide, and for what they consider to be sort of like a throwaway, that's 25 million. What do they do next? But uh, they just do a collaboration album with Brian Eno called uh, Passengers, and uh, it's the original Soundtracks 1 album, which I, that would be like the Rolling Stones following up like Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street with like uh, having their producer co-write an album with them. Like, what? What do you do? Yeah. It's a really odd move. I mean, I guess they were just like, we can do anything we literally want right now. So we're just going to like 
work with Luciano Pavarotti and get Howie B in here and just do a whole bunch of crazy stuff that we can just... So did you guys even pay attention to when this came out? Were you already yeah. such big YouTube fans? You were like, yes, I am I know exactly I'm going to pick this up no matter what. Or what was? What were your thoughts when this came out? Because I was at the radio station. I remember when this came out. We played uh, Miss Sarajevo uh, like it was a pop song. And we played it every hour. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I bought it. Because it was U2. I mean, it wasn't billed as U2. It was billed as Passengers. But I bought it because I wanted to check it out. I thought it would sound interesting. It's not a record I go back to all the time. Uh, but one of my best friends like loves it. And he actually just tracked down a vinyl copy of it. He was all excited about it. Oh. So. Jay, have yeah, you I heard this? Re- yeah. Yeah, I remember it vaguely when it came out. It was, I mean, it was like Rattle and Hum, but Rattle and Hum got like tons of exposure on MTV. So it was like that type of move where I didn't understand what they were doing <laughs> without all the media attention. Gotcha. Eric, what about you? I remember seeing the Miss Sarajevo video on MTV quite a bit, but as far as wanting to go check it out, nah, because so, it was billed as a side project. So right. it was kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm okay. Now, what's interesting is that this comes out the same year as the Batman Forever soundtrack for the movie Batman Forever, mm-hmm. and includes the song yep. "Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me," which is a radically different sounding U2 compared to this album. And if you were to listen to that song, you would go, "Oh, I this this next U2 record must be pretty rocking if this is the direction <laughs> they're going in," because yeah. uh, that's probably one of their best songs of the decade. Or am I wrong? No, I dig it. Uh, no, it's good, but, but who would have thought that you 2 would have the lead single on a Batman soundtrack? <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. Who, who would have saw that as the yeah. next career move for this band? Great point. At that time. Yeah, and, yeah. and that compila- that soundtrack is pretty all over the place. I mean, yeah. you. I mean, it's a lot of Warner Brothers bands, but you, it ends with Bad Days by the Flaming Lips. Um, yeah. Sunny Day Real Estate's 8 is on it. That's how I was introduced to Sunny Day Real Estate's mm-hmm. music. And you all know what happened to me after that. Um, but it also <laughs> has Seal's Kiss from a Rose. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then you have The Offspring covering The Damned, Smash It Up. Um, I mean, it's just kind of all over the place. And so it's like, well, if you do wants to do something that's as, you know, as out there is uh, hold me thrill me kiss me kill me why not there's a great tune from tracy thorne of everything but the girl on that album too i forget the name of it but that's hunter gets captured by the game i think it's called but that's one of my favorite tunes on that soundtrack so this is the point in which we enter probably the most controversial moment in u2's career when they announce an album and a tour before they actually have an album uh, a giant massive undertaking to which the album is not done yet and they will struggle to finish it and uh they're taking the irony and disaffected uh whatever you want to call it from octune baby and amping it up about 50 times and that's pop which is released in uh, 1997. 
but it seemed like we knew about this album. This came out in March of 97. It felt like we knew about this long before, like a year before. And it was just a, uh, I don't want to say a marketing was more about marketing than, than the actual album. But uh, I remember being in like, uh, a, there's a wing place in Bowling Green and watching, like there was like a press conference on I MTV. Came art. Yeah. And just sitting there in this like wing bar watching this with all these other people, just like, what in the hell is going on? Just like this is the most <laughs> bizarre rollout I've ever seen. Um and they're all actually, smiling throughout yeah. it. It's like it's like, well, yeah, we have to do this at Kmart. So let me ask you guys about the actual album. We've heard varying opinions that it's it's a good album, but it's just not heavy on singles. That it's uh, the they got back to being creative again after the whatever happened on Zeropa. Where do you guys land on on pop? Uh, Eric, I'm gonna start with you. Is it a, is it a worthy album in terms of like do you find it something you go back to or are there certain songs only you go back to? Um rarely. Okay. To be frank. Um Staring at the Sun is a good song. Um uh, Miami is a good song. Uh Discotech um I I I associate that with how the music industry was at the time is that 96, 97, 98 there was this prevailing thought especially with critics is that guitar rock is dead. We got to try something new. Let's try electronic music. And since U2 was already influenced by that going into Octung Baby, they've really embraced it with pop. And I thought Discotech was an okay song, but nothing on that record that I heard on MTV or on the radio made me want to go get it. And keep in mind, only five years prior, here I was being like, I must own everything this band has come out. By that time, I was all about Ben Folds 5, Wilco, Handsome, Pop Punk, Sunny Day Real Estate, <laughs> you know, and and it was it, and it's it's a record that when I circled back to it to, to do this uh, episode, still nothing was really grabbing me about it. And uh, I. I can't fault them for trying something, you know, trying to do what was the logical progression from what they were doing earlier in the decade. But as far as me, I wasn't hearing stuff that really gravitated to uh, any sort of spark of any of their singles. Okay. That's, that's, I think I'm with you on this record. I like like two songs. Yeah. Uh, Joe, what about you? I'm, I I saw Eric pretty much what he just said, but I saw Eric's post on uh, his Twitter post the other day, and I'm like, "Yep, I'm right there with that." <laughs> you know? And the same thing, where just like uh, when the album came out, I just I wasn't excited about it. Um, at this point, like the electronic influence had just become tiresome to me. And I agree that there's there's some songs on it I like, but overall the whole album does doesn't do anything for me. And I just I'd kind of moved on by this point. I, like I like Staring at the Sun, but I actually like there's the, the live acoustic version as a B side that I like better than the album version. And you know there's tracks here and there, but I don't go back to the record very much. 
And I don't buy the argument that they have in YouTube by YouTube. It's like, oh, it, it almost was a good record. We just never finished it. And then I think Paul McGinnis says, uh, that's not true. Y'all had plenty yeah. of time and y'all spent yeah. a lot of money making that record. So don't tell me about how like, oh, well, we we needed to do this or do that because Correct me if I'm wrong. Sorry if I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but there's that uh, compilation that is all there's the one compilation about their stuff that they did in the 80s. And there's the other compilation yep. with the stuff that they did in the 90s. And I believe every song from pop that is on that compilation is a remix. I think right. you're right. Yeah. And that's not a vote of confidence about the record. I know people that love pop. I'm just not one of them, but I don't fault people who love it. Yeah, like I don't hate it. I'm just ambivalent about it. You know, that's that's one of the ones I'm kind of ambivalent about. But I will say uh, that the Pop Mart Live from Mexico City music video they put out for the tour, I, that I liked quite a bit as far as like, like the live videos that they were doing when they would put out tour videos. That was actually a pretty good show. And and their whole village people mock up sort of thing. It's oh, like, yeah. what what's yeah. going on, guys? This is, I, I don't I don't get the humor with it, you know. But I, I have to have a lot of things explained to me. But this whole thing about them like dressing up like the village people, as and the Pop Mart tour. I remember talking to my dad about it when it was coming to Houston. I was like, I think I'd like to go to that. But then just the thought of seeing this like really overblown production. Um, you know, I, I, I much would have preferred to have seen you two when they were touring off of all that you can't leave behind. Right. It was, it was I kind of go back to this period with something you said really, really early on, Eric, where it's like they became the thing that they were parodying and mocking. You know, yeah. by the time they got to this point, like originally they started out the decade, oh, we're going to parody this, we're going to mock this. And then they became that thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in a way, it's like how Blink-182 was mocking boy bands, and then they became a boy band. <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as how their how the media appreciated them. Um, but in, in the case of U2, it's it's like, um, you know, guys, you're mocking this. You were just being yourselves. And but I mean, because at that point, the music industry did not really know where to go next. And so the the thought was, it's like, well, let's consolidate all the major labels and uh, let's uh, fire any person that didn't have a, a record that sold at least 500,000 copies. And uh, then we get all upset that um, people aren't buying records anymore. So clearly it's our fans fault. <laughs> right. It's the audience fault. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it really... U2 was kind of at a crossroads because like we said earlier, it's like they could do whatever they wanted to. And that's, that's not something a lot of bands can have that kind of clout and like they could do whatever they want. And it sells really, really well. It's not a coincidence then based on how this record did that the following, is it the following year or within two years is when they put out their first best of. Yeah. It's almost like they said, okay, well, maybe we need to like uh, uh, remind people that we actually made some good music back in the 80s. and uh, Circle so they, the wagons. Yeah, they put out the best of 80 to, 80 to 90, which, um, you know, again, sold like a gajillion copies. And it had a, a remade, a remixed version of uh, The Sweetest Thing, which was yeah. the, the single off of that, which seemed to be 
I, I know it was an older song, but if you look and listen to that and then listen to it in terms of where they were going on the next record, that they were dialing it down, focusing on. And I, I think the thing that, you know, which happens with bands that pursue a, a you know, a, a, a rhythm and groove oriented record is that sometimes they leave some of the melody behind. Um, is that yeah. you? They really focused on songwriting and and melody writing. Yeah, uh, going I mean, it, forward, it's what Morrissey's saying about in Panic. It's just like you know, you're playing music that speaks nothing to my life, and that's. I mean, he's always hated dance music, and that's kind of been the problem I've had with dance music. Is that it's fun to dance to in a club, but as far as going home and listening to it or in, or in a car, right. it's just, it doesn't really connect. Right. So. We get to the end of the decade here with with you two. They've seemed to have fallen into a a rut or or not, not even a rut. They they drove themselves into a rut with uh the over promising and under delivering of of pop. They circle the wagons and they throw out a, a best of to uh to um I guess uh I don't know, build back the 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 loyalty of fans and um, head into the two thousands with, you know, the, although it's not a nineties album, all that you can't leave behind comes out and has a massive single with beautiful day. Uh, Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like old you two in the sense that it's not this earnest, uh, you know, somewhat political, uh, you know, early U2, like war, pride, that kind of stuff. It's a straight up pop song from U2. Yeah. But not in the 90s ironic version. It's a uh, a completely earnest pop song from U2, which is almost, you know, that's not something they've done before. So did they survive the 90s or did they... In terms of the, especially the way that the decade ended for them, um, they have to basically reinvent themselves again. They had to reinvent themselves at the beginning of the '90s. Did they have to reinvent themselves at the end of the '90s to survive? That's, I guess, that's yeah. the question I'm left with with this band. Yeah, I would say yeah. that they had to reinvent themselves because Pop Mart did okay, but it didn't do great. It didn't do better than Octung Baby. And they just really stripped it down to there. There's still a lot of electronics experimentation. It's just very much dialed down on all that you can't leave behind. Right. Um, you know, because like the intro to Beautiful Day is very electronic. You know, Edge is playing harmonics, but there's all these like delayed keyboards going on. And but then when you have that chorus, which you watch the U2 live in Boston on the Elevation Tour. I mean, and the lights go up and just, even though they have like backing vocals, you know, pre-recorded, it just raises the level of just how that crowd is. And for me as someone that was watching it at home on VH1 and then later buying the DVD, every time I watch that, I, I my mood is elevated. And that's what kind of U2 was missing for a number of years towards the end of the 90s, I think. It's right. like they kind of took everything they had done and blended it all together. 
uh, into one coherent thing. And that's basically what they've been since then. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's got a little bit of every part of their sound. I think what's interesting between this and pop is that pop was big on the image change and the production changes, but from a music standpoint, it's not very poppy. Whereas this is like really strong pop songwriting and the Mm -hmm. image and everything tone, they tone it down. I mean, yes, the, the stage production is still amazing, but it's really all about the songs and about just them as people. It's like they flip the script on, what it means to be pop and focus more on, Hey, let's just write some really great hooky uplifting songs. And then we can kind of pull back the wearing the silver cowboy hat and the giant (laughs) olive on the stick and the McDonald's arches and all the stuff that was going on before that. And just do like a really intimate, cool stage with great lighting and let the songs speak for themselves. Right. Cause leading up to all that you can't believe behind that was what, me and a lot of my music friends were saying was like we just i'd gotten so weary of electronics and all like you were just saying like all the spectacle and brouhaha that went along with it i'm like i wanted to just go back and make a rock album you know straight up rock album and that's what i got with all you can't leave behind they kind of like eric was saying there's still some of those elements there but they're more in the background and for the most part like you just said it's a straight up, it's a pop record. And that was what I wanted. I just want simple music without all this stuff behind it. Just like four guys making music that I can relate to again. Yeah. And I would say all that you can't leave behind really saved the band because they've been able to carry on ever since. Uh, but for me, like I've tried to give no line on the horizon, songs of innocence and songs of experience a chance. And, they just really don't connect with me. I mean, and I realized this when I, I had a five hour drive ahead of me last December, I was driving to Lubbock from uh, Dallas and there's not much between Dallas and Lubbock. I was going to go see my sister graduate with her masters from Texas tech. And so I had a copy of songs of experience and I took a listen to it and I realized like, this is just kind of the story of me with you too. I really like it when it sounds like they have 10 guitar players in their band. And when they don't, it sounds like they have like one, maybe two. It's not as compelling to me. Mm-hmm. What do y'all think of that? I, I agree in a sense too, because one of the things that, um, when the video for, um, beautiful day came out, one of the things that I thought was cool is like, Holy shit, edge is playing an explorer in this video. That was probably the first time he dug out that guitar since the early days of the band. You know, you never saw him play an explorer in the eighties or or even like the most of the nineties. It was just like, wow, they are kind of digging back to their roots a little bit. So where do you guys land on you two now? They've, they've released, they've consistently released records every three to four years. Um, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb came out in 2004. That had a number of singles on it. Uh, No Line in the Horizon, um, that came out in 2009. And then uh, Songs of Innocence in 2014. We can't remember that because anybody who had an Apple device uh, got that automatically uploaded to their... (laughs) Whether they wanted it or not. Yeah. And then uh, Songs of Experience just came out last year now what's interesting is like when you start looking at the sales numbers for these records uh <laughs> like songs of experience a hundred and eighty thousand in the u.s oh my that's goodness. good that's good 
yeah, in this these day days. And age. <laughs> yeah. 1.3 million worldwide. I mean, from a band that was putting out, you know, consistently 10 million plus every record for a while. That's astonishing. Yeah. But I mean, it's just it's just the nature of like people like to sample what they want to buy. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people are just kind of complacent with just streaming or downloading. Yeah. Um, it's no fault of people, but uh, as far as like me wanting to physically own a, a new U2 album, it hasn't been there for a number of years. I will say I like Songs of Innocence, um, but I haven't. I've bar- I haven't even listened to the new album yet. I've like had no desire to listen to it. I just, I, I just, one of these days I might get around to it. Um, I tr- no line on the horizon. I was kind of back and forth about. I did like how to dismantle atomic bomb when that came out, but um, for as many millions of copies of these albums these guys sold, or a band like REM, you go into your average used record store, you go look in the U two section, you go look at the REM section. There are dozens and dozens of copies of these albums yeah you know yeah. that from the 90s that they're there as compared to like other bands because they'd sold so many and so many people bought them and just said yeah i don't need that anymore yeah because u2's at the point where the one of the last big tours that they did was a joshua tree anniversary tour mm-hmm. and so i've joked i would jokingly say on twitter it's like so is bono gonna go off on rants again <laughs> um but apparently from everything that i've heard about that anniversary tour they just stuck to playing the songs you know none of this like there's been a lot of talk about ireland you know i mean when you're spoofed on when ben stiller had a show on mtv before he had a show on fox but he had a show on mtv called the Ben Stiller show where they did a sketch called my YouTube dads. And it was, uh, you know, this, this girl is just complaining about homework. And, and so then the door is kicked open and it's Ben Stiller as Bono. And it's like, there's been a lot of talk about homework. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. You know, you know, it's, yeah. it's like, as far as like cultural pantheon, you two can still play huge places. But as far as, getting people to be excited about new records. Um, I know that a lot of people spoke highly of songs of experience. One guy that I trust his opinion was saying that this is the best record that they have done since Octung baby. I gave it a very good listen and tried to get into it. And I'm like, I don't hear it, man. Don't. Hmm. Hmm. So let's, let's reach our conclusion here with, uh, the nineties, did they kill you too? From a, from a artistically relevant point, I guess I'd say, or are, is, is all that you can't leave behind and how to dismantle an atomic bomb enough to say that they survived the nineties. And, uh, we, we have, we were, we have, our decade did not uh, take them down. What do you think, Joe? I think they survived in the 90s, but not the 2000s. And if anybody did them in at the end of the 90s, it was themselves. But I still think they survived in the 90s. Okay. Eric? Yeah, they survived the 90s. Um, even though the pop is just a very mixed record overall to describe their reception, uh, they still survived. Jay? 
Yeah, they survived. I would argue they even survived the 2000s. I don't think they've survived the 2010s, but I don't. Yeah, okay, that's a better point for me. Sorry. I, I, well, and it comes down to like, I guess we have to redefine what survive means now because once you get past 2010, it's a whole new. Yeah, it's true. Definition of like album sales. What what does it mean? Like, what's a good, what are good numbers and. What's actually like success for a band? I don't. I don't think we've quite figured that out, and we're almost all the way through uh, the tens, and we still aren't quite <laughs> on our feet again in terms of what the hell is success in the music business. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say they've survived it more than probably is more more than anybody we've done uh, one of these episodes for. No, I mean Metallica. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were more relevant in the two thousands than Metallica was. Don't you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Metallica was just really struggling to find their footing in especially the post-new metal years. It's yeah. like, you know, we, we want to stay relevant, but we still want to be ourselves. And I think that's... Uh, U2 has always kind of swum, swum in their own stream, right? But they wanted to make music that resonated with people. Because, um, uh, I mean... At, they had one of the biggest selling records at a time that hair metal was the biggest rock export. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you would have white snakes. Here I go again, Bon Jovi's living on a prayer. Um, and at Tiffany's, uh, I think we're alone now, Debbie Gibson, uh, electric youth, and then you twos with or without you. <laughs> and yeah. then our, and then REMs, it's the end of the world as we, and we, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I'm, st I feel fine. Um, and then dead milkman's, uh, you know, punk rock girl. Uh, but the point was, is like this, this inspired rock people. I mean, this is, it was very impressionable on me. And I went back and watched a lot of those, uh, MTV videos or videos that are now on YouTube. They still resonate with me. Um, and this is why, like, I am proud to say that U2 was the first band that I really fell in love with. And I've, fell, I've fallen in love with many bands since, but you never forget your first. And if ever there was a good time to get into U2, it was between 87, 92. I would agree with that. And all that you can't leave behind. I mean, that's a full decade after Octoon Baby, you know, mm -hmm. that they're still at the top of their game and as successful as ever. How did this man all atomic bomb? That's four years later. You know, it's still relevant. So that's that's significant. I don't. Metallica wasn't at that height in two thousand. Right. You know, they were yep. they were still struggling and had never really. They still haven't written their all that you can't leave behind. That like true re return to mega success and big hit song. Like they're still trying to do that. Yeah. Well, it comes down to this. What if you were to see you two today? What would you prefer them to? play um do you want to hear sunday bloody sunday again and again do you want to hear some of the new stuff do you want to hear some kind of some deep cuts you know it's it it's hard because they have so many big hit songs but they got a new record to promote mm -hmm. you know and it, it's it's kind of a struggle because like i would say that there's a there's some pretty stark differences between so songs that are on songs of experience and then songs that are on how to dismantle an atom bomb and uh, stuff from uh, the unforgettable fire. Yeah. Well, I mean, when your, your career is that long, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. Like I mentioned the stones at the top. I mean, the difference between the stones now 
and you know bridges to babylon and tattoo <laughs> you and dirty yeah. work and exile <laughs> on main street i mean you know it's it's the issue of any band that lasts that long is that they're yeah. just gonna have a lot of different eras and it's gonna be weird when certain songs butt up against each other so we'll get yeah, to and- our, our rolling stones in the 90s <laughs> oh that'll be going didn't Bono say that when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is like, hey, music industry, you wouldn't have given you two a chance the way that you guys are doing things now. And he had a point, you know, True. absolutely. All right, gents, it's time to wrap up. I want to uh, tell people where they can go and, and find out all about your stuff. Eric, where should I direct people to? I, I know we I've done this before. <laughs> Theme park experience. Uh, yeah, themeparkexperience.com. That's my personal blog. Um, you can also find me on the Dallas Observer. Uh, I, that's that's where the majority of what I've been writing uh, has been found. Um, still do a podcast. Haven't put out a podcast episode in a few months, but uh, it's called Do You Know Who You Are? And that you can find that on um, Stitcher as well as iTunes. Joe, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at Sit and Spin with Joe on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. And I, I have been uh, not able to do a show for a little while just because of uh, just personal stuff, illness, and other stuff going on in my life. But I uh, hope to have a new show out soon. Okay. And want to remind everybody, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback at iTunes for JM Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out thanks for listening to support the podcast visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our facebook twitter and instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com 